Hey, I'm Roberta Blevins, and this is Life After MLM, a podcast where we work to end the stigma of failure in an industry designed for you to fail. Hey, I'm just popping in with a little bit of holiday housekeeping. Welcome to day three of nine days of holiday magic. Don't forget to follow along with us on social media. Make sure that you're not missing some of our really cool announcements and giveaways that we've got going on. Um, And we also have a new giveaway coming up. So stay tuned for after the show for some details on that. Last episode um, in my housekeeping, I talked about the secret sister scam. And oddly enough, the day that episode came out, uh, I got tagged in a post about secret sister scams. And in the comments, there were people that listened to the show. Thank you so much saying, hey, Roberta just talked about this today. So I am so happy that I am talking about these holiday scams and that it's actually applicable. And like we are teaching people as it's happening and people will not get scammed. So I'm really excited about that. But unfortunately, Secret Sister is not the only holiday scam that is happening right now. So I'm going to talk about another scam that happens this time of year called a blessing loom. And in my research, going into blessing looms, trying to get the most accurate information so that I could explain it to you guys well as well, I learned about a blessing loom scam that just happened within the last year and a half. So while I teach you about blessing looms, we are also going to learn the story of B-I-N-T, or BENT, which stands for Blessings in No Time. So a blessing loom shows up on social media. It happens a lot. Uh, I see them anytime people need money. So any sort of gifting holiday, um, usually like tax time, Mother's Day, things like that, when you want to take money that you have and you want to make more money with it. Uh, It usually comes as like an investment scheme, but it's basically a bird's eye view of a pyramid if you look at it. They can be called blessing looms, gifting circles, money boards, or susus. Uh, And unfortunately, these particular scams tend to target Black communities over any other. I'm not really sure why, just statistically so. In 2020, the Better Business Bureau received 68 scam reports about blessing looms. So as I was looking, like I said, as I was looking at blessing looms, this, this bent kept showing up. And so I was like, okay, what is this? And I'm so happy that I decided to dig a little bit deeper because I found a honeypot and I have been like researching this and looking up information for the past two days. And it's kind of juicy. So bent was a Texas based scam that was founded by husband and wife, Marlon and LaShonda Moore. Uh, and they began promoting Bent as early as June of 2020. And it's really is just a basic blessing loom scam. Basically, a blessing loom is a big giant circle. It looks like a target. And there are four circles. There's a center circle that has one space. The next circle out has two spaces. The third circle has four spaces. And then the outermost circle has eight spaces. When you join a board you join on the outermost circle and the buy-in for these boards is $1,400. That's all you pay. You join a board at the outermost circle for $1,400 and you work your way in by recruiting people. Once the entire loom has been filled in, the person in the center receives a payout and the loom splits 
And then the two people that were in the next circle start their own new blessing looms. And those people are now in the center of new looms. So one loom successfully completed creates two new looms on the next round. And at that point, the payout is $11,200. And you basically just repeat this forever and ever and ever. And that's how a blessing loom works. But again, like the last one's in approach that Robert Fitzpatrick talks about in Ponzinomics, it applies here as well. Even in a successful circle, there are eight last ones in that paid and haven't received anything yet. So on an original loom, there's only eight last ones in, but after four successful levels where you would work your way from the outside inside at that level, now you have 64 last ones in. This just sort of increases exponentially until you run out of people or money, whatever comes first. So let's learn a little bit more about this husband and wife team, the Moors. So the husband uh, calls himself Celebrity DJ Marlon Moore, a.k.a. Marlon D. Maiden, DJ ASAP or ASAP the Mogul. And then his wife, LaShonda S. Moore, who is a Texas real estate agent. So they started Bent in June of 2020. And again, it stands for Blessings in No Time. The membership for joining Bent was solicited through Zoom calls. Uh, You have to remember this was a couple months into the COVID pandemic. We've got a lot of scared people, a lot of people out of work, a lot of people stuck at home, a lot of people with very, very, very tight fixed incomes. You can't go anywhere, right? You can't see people. Everybody's on lockdown. I'm feeling triggered just even talking about it. Uh, Okay, so you put yourself back there, back there a little over a year ago, and everybody's on Zoom. And they're doing these big Zoom calls, these big indoctrination calls, and they're soliciting membership this way. And Marlon would say things like, you've received an invite here because someone loves you. Say thank you in the chat. Right there, that is so unbelievably loaded, talking about, you know, you should be so grateful that you're here. Someone who loves you sent you this. This has to be very special. There's a lot of loaded language that comes with choosing those particular words in that order. Um, And then also when you check in and you say hi, that's also a way for them to track not only who's there, but who's willing to read what was told and then do what was asked of them. Even at the very, very most basic, they're like, that's somebody that listens. And then on these Zooms, these Zoom chats, they would explain that they were an all black private community that was especially for and specifically created for the black community. LaShonda would get on and she would explain the concept of a blessing loom uh, and she would dismiss any talk of it being a scam. And she would tell people the very famous quote, we're not like others. And then she called this blessing loom a micro economy and a link funding community. That is some very creative, scammy doublespeak right there. So here's what the Moors were promising. First, you're going to invite your friends and your family into this very exclusive circle. And you can trust the Moors when they say that no one is going to be losing any money. And that if you want a refund, you can get it at any time. And that these blessings that you receive when you reach the center of the circle are completely legal within the IRS tax code. And that all you have to do is put in $1,400 
and that all you have to do is put in $1,400 and then you will get $11,200 within seven to 10 days of the circle. And that all you would have to do is put in $1,400 and that you would get $11,200 within seven to 10 days. The Moors flaunted their status constantly and they used it to recruit people. Um, they were well known and they used their quote unquote celebrity to basically scam their community, which is a form of affinity fraud. And they would tell people that they had friends in high places like doctors, lawyers, and then agents in the FBI and the IRS, etc. They would say, you have nothing to worry about with Bint. Many of those who had joined in July, which were mostly the Moors, friends and families, actually participated in multiple looms and are believed to have made millions. In August 2020, membership was in the thousands and the Moors decided to streamline the process with an app. And they brought on somebody whose name is Nehemiah Thompson. And he had an app that was called Connect Me. So they stopped releasing boards, but they kept allowing people to join into the community. And they kept taking their money. And they let everybody know that they wouldn't be releasing and opening up new boards until people joined Connect Me and it cost $85 a month. But that's nothing compared to the $11,000 they would get when their loom completed. They explained that Bint was now a software company and then they published new rules and they called it the Bint Bible and they said that any violators of it would be kicked out. In September 2020, people started asking questions. Seems that this app, Connect Me, it showed all of the boards of the games and it was very easy to see where the nepotism was. And they found out that there were thousands of boards that had the Moors and their friends, families, that had the Moors, their friends, family, and their admin team in the center being blessed out. And people could actually see the size of the community. And it started to create distrust and even more questions. But, of course, the Moors ignored all of it. And they blamed the community for the stalled boards. They said they were greedy and that they accused people of inciting fear and canceled the access to communicate with each other by closing down the messaging boards in the app that they were required to use. Um, that's information control. That's straight out of the bite model. By October 2020, if you asked for a refund, you were completely excommunicated from the group and people became fearful of losing their investments. And so they stopped asking questions. People defected from the bent groups and they started new blessing looms. But there were spies, which is another bite model thing. Uh, and those spies reported back and anybody that had been found to do that were also kicked out and they lost their, their investments as well. Uh, and then the other thing that started happening is that people that couldn't finish their boards because they couldn't recruit people into those eight empty spaces. Well, the Moors, they were still recruiting people that wanted to join boards. So the Moors started charging people for recruits and they would charge $700 to get people into your loom to be able to finish it, which created just a third income stream for the Moors. In November of 2020, the Moors decided to hide the scam even longer by creating even more subgroups and even more giving platforms to make it look like the scam was very successful. And the Moors continued to live very lavishly with trips and parties and lavish gifts. 
In December 2020, the Moors celebrated Bint's Xmas, and they announced a restart for 2021. January 2021, Bintscam.com was created, which is where I got most of my information about these people. Uh, and bravo to you guys for doing this and being the voice to help the victims, because y'all know I'm all about that. They started researching, digging, and educating people about the Bint scam and about the Moors just in general. Um, and their education and digging led, they believe that the Moors have received over $40 million from the scam. And Connect Me's Thompson has, has received over $5 million in fees from the app. In February of 2021, the Moors ghosted everybody. Uh, but yet they still promote Bent and play the victim. Weird. What does that sound like? And then the icing on the cake in June 2021, the FTC and the state of Arkansas sued the operators of Blessings in No Time, alleging that it was operating an illegal pyramid scheme that bilked tens of millions of dollars from thousands of victims targeting Black communities and those struggling financially during COVID-19. It goes on to say that Bent primarily targeted the Black communities, describing the scheme as financial freedom to do everything from pay your own surgery to fulfill a student's dream of attending college and so much more. The complaint alleges that Bent is, in fact, a pyramid scheme because for every member who receives a payout, eight more will have to pay in and receive nothing. The last one's in, like we talked about, right? In the complaint, the victims also said that Bent had illegally prohibited them from speaking out on social media. As of right now, I don't see anything um, new or any updates since June, but I will pop in not only the Bent Scam website so you can get more information if you're interested, uh, but also the FTC's case, the, the link to the court case if you're interested in reading that. It's about 31 pages long, so, you know. Maybe you want to do your own deep dive into this story and learn a little bit more. Um, but yeah, you know, that is, that's the story of Bint, uh, at least where it's at now. And that's a blessing loom. And that's why you definitely don't want to get involved with them. And they are so scammy and they are going to be everywhere. So please, please, please keep your eyes peeled. You know, the red flags, you know what to look for. Help others see them too. Make sure your friends don't get sucked into these this year and again if you see them what can you do you can ignore them you can report them using the links in the show notes or again if it's somebody that you care about please educate them so that they don't continue to do this stuff and that they can continue to help other people not get sucked into these as well let's stop participating in scams because that is the only way that these things are thriving Enjoy the show and make sure you stay tuned to the very end. There's a little blip. Welcome back to another episode of Life After MLM. Today we have a special guest and we're doing things a little bit differently today. I would like to welcome to the show Lindsay Helm, author of the book Vixen from Mormon Convert to LDS Apostate. Hello, welcome to the show. It's so great to have you. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I am super excited to be here and super excited to talk to you. I'm so excited. Usually we talk about people who get in and out of MLMs and then sometimes there's religious ties, but today we are going to talk to you who got in and out of a religion and then there's MLM ties inside that story. So it's kind of fun trying something different and I'm really excited. So Lindsay, um, let's start from the beginning. Introduce yourself. Uh, and we'll go from there. 
All right, awesome. Well, my name is Lindsay. I converted to Mormonism at 13 years old and I joined for a variety of reasons. Um, but like I explained in my book, I truly joined because I was looking for something that I didn't have. And what I didn't have was a lot of structure. I have a very interesting and more untraditional family dynamic. Um, you know, my mom and dad, they were together for a short period of time before I came into the world and they had me and things didn't work out. And so they, they went their separate ways. And my mom raised me as a single mom. And then I was really sick as a child. I was really, really sick to the point where my mom could hardly work. And even when she was working, um, she couldn't really pay my, my medical bills. And so we ended up moving out of our rental and in with my grandparents and they were able to help with my care. And we had an in-home nurse that would also come help take care of me um, and help my mom like train her how to do everything. And we weren't really supposed to stay there for very long. And then we ended up staying for about 13 years. So my entire childhood until I graduated from high school basically. During that time, there was a lot of things that happened that still, I don't really know if I know like the whole truth, you know, because when you're a kid, you get bits and pieces of the truth and half truths and you see things from a different perspective than maybe what's real. And so when I was a teenager, I was having a little bit of a hard time making friends, just like every other middle schooler I've ever met. You're just kind of trying to find your place in the world. And I fell into the group of Mormon kids at school who I still am friends with on social media and things like that today. Uh, I, you know, I really do still value their friendship and their influence in my life. Um, but I joined um, their, you know, little gang of friends and I uh, went to church with them. I went to mutual with them, which is like a youth group on Wednesdays. And then I started going to their church dances and then I started going to church with them on Sunday, but it was never like, I never really committed like to that. Like I never, at that point I hadn't like baptized, get gotten baptized or anything like that. And so um, some time passed a few months maybe. And then I started learning more about their faith and um, I decided, you know what, this is what I want. I want to go all in because I was trying to find my place in the world and I found it with them. I also was looking for structure and their church gave me structure. I was also able to look inside their homes um, and be a part of their families in a way. And it was very traditional. Mom stayed at home, dad went to work. You know, everyone had a crazy amount of siblings and it was chaos, but it was amazing. And, you know, looking back at my life, being an only child and being raised by a single mom and um, grandparents and knowing that that wasn't like the norm. Um, I really loved kind of the old fashioned, I always called the leave it to beaver kind of lifestyle that the Mormon culture offered. And so I was like, okay, this is something that I want. This is the life that I want for myself. It's something I don't have now, but I can make it happen if I join their church. And so I went all in, I got baptized. 
Um, and I was in the faith for just over a decade. And um, during that time, I learned a lot of things that I didn't know about and I did not consent to at the time that I was baptized at 13 years old. And that is ultimately what led to me leaving the church and what led me here today talking to you. Wow. What a like, it, first of all, 13 is wow. Yeah. That is such a huge decision to make at such a young age. What did your family say when you decided that you wanted to become part of the Mormon church? Well, it, actually, it's a really interesting story because for one, um, if I was, if I didn't have the experience I had with the LDS church, if my son came home and was like, I'm having the best time at church. They are so kind to me. I have amazing friends at church. They're good influences, you know, like they're not getting him into trouble. I'd be like, yeah, that's awesome, buddy. Like go to that church camp, like go to that youth group on Wednesday. You know, like I would be super pumped that my kid found a really healthy group of friends to hang out with. And truly I did have that. I really, really did. The thing is, is I didn't really know what I was committing to. And so, and neither did my family really like they were, they kind of saw it from that perspective that I just had offered was like, wow, like this is so cool. Lindsay's in this good group of friends. But interestingly enough, after I joined the church, I found out that I actually had like a long heritage of Mormon family and like, like pioneer history is basically what they call or pioneer heritage is what the like what active members would call it now. So um, I had ancestors that were part of like the Utah pioneer heritage came over with like Brigham Young and settled the Utah Valley and like all of that stuff. And I had no idea of any of that um, because my family ended up before I was born, um, eventually they went what's called inactive. So they just kind of stopped going to church, but they didn't have their records removed or anything like that. So technically they were still Mormon. They just weren't practicing. And so when I found the church all on my own, they were like, oh yeah, we used to be Mormon. That was pretty cool. Maybe we should try that out again. And so they ended up actually coming back to church <laughs> because I converted on my own. And so, um, yeah, that was unexpected, an unexpected twist for sure. Um, my mom went back for a little bit to the church, but as a single woman in the church, it's very different than, you know, a 13 year old hanging out with friends and stuff like that. Um, she's a single mom and, you know, everyone else her age was married with tons of kids and more established. And she was going back to college, trying to get her education and raise me. And they, she just had a very different um, life than a lot of the women in our church. So that's really interesting. That's yeah. a, I mean, that that's good, you know, that they were so supportive. That's wonderful that you have such a supportive family. And they're like, wait a second. Yeah, let's just go back in. Like, why not? And it's wonderful that you had such a great community. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, generally that's what you're going to find in a small town. You've got the local church. We go to so many different events at the local church here in town. We go to the Mormon events. We go to the Christian events. Um, and we've always been met with nothing but wonderful, kind people. Some of the nicest people that I know go to those churches. Yeah. So again, I don't think anybody is ever very predatory when you are introduced 
to things like this. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I've had people say that to me before too. Like people that will message me and be like, I just finished your book. And, you know, I know, you know, LDS people or whatever, and they're nothing like what you write about. And just, you know, just as a disclaimer, my book is not some kind of like hate parade or anything like that on the Mormon church. It's my experience. So if you have not read my book, it is my experience. I own my words. I own my story. Um, when I published the book, I did not want any, I didn't want to be putting more hate into the world. Like I just simply wanted to share my story. And so I'm like, yeah, you're right. Because there's a lot of amazing people that are Mormon, a lot of really amazing people that I love so much. And this book was not written, you know, to diss on them or to, um, hate on their religion. I'm just saying that there is room for improvement within the culture, especially as, um, an adolescent that grew up in her like very um, formative years and ended up having a lot of trauma from the type of culture and teachings that happen that are just simply accepted because they've just been happening for so long and no one really because you're in your bubble you don't understand that what they're teaching is harmful so I'm just hoping that there's room for improvement um, when, you know, when people read this book, I hope they see that and be like, oh, wow, she had that experience. I wonder if someone else did too, because I guarantee you someone else has probably had that same experience, whether it's your friend or not. Um, I have people reach out to me quite often that say, I've never had, I've never been able to relate to someone else because no one speaks about this stuff. And so, you know, it, it makes me feel good, but it also breaks my heart because I don't want people to go through what I went through. Absolutely. And I, I'm so proud of you for being so brave to speak out. It is very difficult. You get a lot of people that come after you and they say horrible things about you. And you're just like, I'm just telling my truth. <laughs> this isn't about you. And people try to invalidate you and make you into this horrible person <laughs> so that nobody wants to listen to you. Yeah. Um, so I commend you for your bravery it takes a lot. And I am absolutely proud of you for not only like coming out, speaking out, but like writing a book that is like <laughs> number one on like the charts and stuff. It's amazing. Thank you. Yeah, it was a lot. Uh, it was a lot like I, so you can't really tell by the way I'm sitting, maybe you can kind of, you can see the door hinge right here, but this room is like a tiny little room that I'm in. And I took the closet door off of this little closet and I turned into my writing closet. So I literally wrote a book in a closet. Um, but I just come into my closet and I would just cry and bawl my eyes out and like scream and write and feel literally like I was dying from the inside out because that's like, that is my soul on paper. Like it is, I had to relive everything when I was writing it and it was so healing, so healing. Like I, I can't describe how healing it was. It was like, I had to face everything again. Like it was almost like I had to go back in time and like face it and write about it, write exactly how I was feeling. And, um, it was very exhausting, but I did it. And I feel like, a thousand pounds lifted off my shoulders. So you're amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about maybe, I mean, I don't know if you know the first, but again, you did write a book about it. So maybe some of your first inclinations and how old you were when you started noticing things were not maybe what you signed up for. Yeah. So 
I think I had some small things happen in high school. So in high school, the LDS kids are encouraged to take seminary. So you take four years of seminary and become a seminary graduate, which is interesting. I mean, it's kind of cool when you think about it because um, usually seminary, when it's talked about, you know, reserved for people that really study religion, like big time, like they make their lives work out of it. And, you know, we have high school kids doing it. So it's kind of cool. Um, but anyway, you're kind of encouraged to take seminary, but then if you take seminary, you also have to take an extra class during the day. So usually you'd have a zero hour. So you go to school before everyone else. So you could fit seminary into your day. And I say it was encouraged because that's what I thought when I started high school. I, I'm a little bit younger um, uh, than most of my classmates. I started school a little bit early. So uh, I didn't turn 13 until I was a freshman in you know high school. And when I signed up for seminary, I was like, oh, this could be cool. Like all my friends are doing it. And it's like an hour of church during the middle or during the week every day. And it's at school. And I don't know, it's just like a chance to like keep practicing my faith. And so I started doing that. But then what I kind of found out was like, it's not really encouraged. It's you're just kind of just told that that's what you're supposed to do. Because if you're not a seminary graduate at the end of high school, it's not looked well upon, like it's not favored really at all, um, especially if you want to attend a private church university like BYU. And I really, I decided I wanted to, probably my sophomore or junior year, I really wanted to attend uh, BYU-Idaho in Rexburg, Idaho. And so I took seminary and applied to BYU-Idaho got in. Um, and then that's when things really started to kind of shift for me. I, I had the realization about seminary in high school about how, okay, you're encouraged, but then if you don't do it, then you're kind of frowned upon. And I was like, mm, okay, like that's uncomfortable. That's a little uncomfy, you know, that doesn't feel great. But then you go to college and you go to a private church school where everything is decided for you. And I mean, everything. Um, what you wear, what you eat, what you drink, what you can watch on TV. Um, I'm like, you can't wear sandals on campus without, like, you can't wear flip-flops. You can't wear shorts. You can't wear capris. You can't wear pants with holes in them. You can't wear sweatpants. Girls, if you were to wear a dress or skirt, had to be like just at the knee or below the knee. Um, and then if you had to go take a test at the testing center on campus uh, and you were dressed, I guess, inappropriately. And I say that with finger quotes because we all know it's ridiculous. Um, if you weren't dressed to like their standard, basically kicked out of your test, like you wouldn't be able to finish your test be all because of the way you were dressed. So that actually happened to me. Um, I didn't get kicked out, but I almost got kicked out because I was taking a math test. I was really stressed about it. Anyone that knows me knows I'm terrible at math, terrible. My brain does not work that way, like at all. My, I do not have a numbers brain. I have a creative brain and that is it. And so I was taking a math test and I was leaning forward on my desk like this, right? And I had my elbows, I had my head in my hands like this. And I was really stressed out about it. And then all of a sudden I get a tap on the, on the shoulder. 
and I turn around and it's a, a worker that worked in the testing center. And she said, excuse me, your shirt is come up and we can see your lower back in your underwear and it's really inappropriate. And if you can't fix it, you're going to be asked to leave. And I was like, whoa, okay. Like I'll fix it. It's like, you know, kind of sit up, pull my shirt down. I adjust myself, pull my test closer. I'm sitting there and I'm like trying not to lean forward because I'm like super stressed out now that my back's going to show and I'm going to get kicked out of my test. And I never regained focus on that test ever. The whole time I was so stressed about what I looked like. And if I was making someone else uncomfortable because of what I looked like, that I could hardly finish my test. And so it started getting in the way of my academics, just the way that, you know, the rules and expectations and like the pressure. And I just felt like I couldn't, I couldn't even take a test. I couldn't focus on anything because I was so worried about checking all the boxes and being good enough and making sure I wasn't upsetting anybody. And it was just, I don't know, like if I had a daughter and she was in that situation, I would be livid. I'd be so livid. So um, that was kind of when things started spiraling for me, but I kept it hidden. I did not talk about it at all. I didn't think there was room for me to talk about it. You know, like there's not really room for that kind of doubt or criticism within an organization like that. So, right. And like, shouldn't that be a red flag to somebody? To be yeah. like, this organization is so consumed with not only what I'm wearing, but like how I'm wearing it and how it lays when I'm in a specific position. Yeah. So much so that it's consuming your thoughts and you're unable to like focus properly in your tests and your academic scores are affected by it. Like that, that's a red flag, like a huge one. And our cognitive dissonance, that, that uncomfortable feeling that we get, you just ignored it and kept quiet and kept your nose to the grindstone and just kept going. Yep. Yep. That's exactly what happened. And it's, it kind of snowballs, right? Like it's, so in Mormon culture, we call it uh, our shelf breaking. So if you ever hear that term, that's kind of what we call it. I don't know if other, you know, people use that term too, but um, in all of the ex-Mormon groups or ex-Mo groups, that's what you hear is, you know, what was, what broke your shelf? And often, more often than not, it's not like one big event because I think all of us want to believe it so badly because it gives us a lot of things that we really love. Like for me, the family and the community aspect of it is something I didn't want to lose, but it was like all those little things just like kept piling and piling and piling. And my shelf started to slowly just sort of crack and crack and crack. And then it just broke one day and you know, that's where there's no going back. You kind of have to decide what, what to do and where to go from there. And, and I completely agree with you. And you said there, there never is like one thing. Yeah. It's just like the compilation of so many things, right? Like you think, you think to like a bad relationship when you first decide that you don't like your partner anymore and you don't want to be in this relationship. And it's like, I don't know if you've ever heard the term bitch eating crackers or a BEC. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> this is one of my favorite things. Oh. When you like, don't like someone anymore. It doesn't matter what they do, right? Everything they do is going to annoy you 
or like affect you in a way. And so it's like that bitch eating crackers. It's like, look at that bitch just eating crackers. Yeah. It's like everything. Right. And so it's the same with these relationships. It's the same with these institutions, with these groups, high demand groups. Yep. It just, it picks away at you slowly. Yeah. And slowly, and you just like, look at him eating crackers over there. It's like nothing. It's not one thing. Yep, exactly. And sometimes like there is a big event and that's kind of the straw that breaks the camel's back. But like, if all the other little things didn't happen first, it would have been easier to just like sweep under the rug, you know, like it would have been like, okay, I don't like that, but everything else is fine. So I'm not too uncomfortable yet. You know, like I have a lot of friends that for them, the prop eight thing was really uncomfortable for them to be a Mormon at that time. And they swept it under the rug because, you know, they didn't have anything else on their shelf at the time. It was just that. And now that we live in the world that we're living in, where we're not taking any of this anymore, where we are fighting so hard for each other and for our, for each other's rights, even if we don't relate to that specific, you know, need, people are starting to be aware and they're like, oh, that's really not cool. Like, that's not okay. And I don't know if I want to belong to an organization that doesn't fight for people, you know, for their people first, they fight, they fight harder for themselves and, you know, for, for that than they do for each other. And that's where I am. That's where I kind of land sometimes because I am a human who is not going to be perfect and who is going to, and I am not the same as you or as anybody else. And I would want someone to fight for me if, you know, if I asked them to, because they love me and because they want me to be able to have a good life. And, um, I think we just are kind of coming back to that humanity aspect of it. Um, I don't know if that makes sense, but I, I want to believe that, you know, we as human beings will put each other first when the time comes. So maybe we're trying to get back to that. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, that's how I feel. That's, that's how I try to live my life too. You know, like it's about connecting Mm -hmm. it's about authenticity and connecting and and having these really cool conversations and meeting amazing people and learning things and being better every day I'm not perfect by any means at all like I am the first one to let everybody know that I am not perfect I make all kinds of mistakes all the time but I try actively every day to be better than I was the day before yeah Um, And I think that's what sets people apart, right? Either you are actively trying to be better or you're just like, this is fine. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oh, that's funny. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, you know, and I think most of us here that listen to the show and participate every single day, we learn a bit more and we are just a little bit better. And we just decide not to support predatory people and predatory organizations and predatory institutions and we learn and we grow and that's what's important right it's it's the lessons that we learn after the mistakes have been made so that maybe we don't make them anymore (laughs) yeah yeah I know and with social media and stuff too like you know social media is a hard one because it can be used for really good things and really bad things but I think social media in a way has brought us together in a way that we can see each other's humanity 
if we allow that to be shown, right? Because if we don't put filters over everything, maybe we can actually show who we really are and um, show up as we are. And that can be really scary. But I also feel like I believe in humanity enough that when people show up as themselves, that we will clap for them and that we will love them. And there's there shouldn't be any more closets to hide in. Um, for those of us who want to be our true selves and be loved for, you know, who we are, but also for predatory people, there's no more causes to hide in, like, and I think your show is making that known, um, and books like mine that are being written, because there's plenty of them that are being written, are, are saying, no, we're done, and we just want to live, and we want to love, and we want to be, and we don't want to be controlled anymore, and, um, I don't know. I think there's a lot of power in that. I absolutely agree. I just want to say like, I'm done being your scapegoat. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm done being your punching bag. I'm done. Yeah. And we're going to call it out now. We're done being nice and just being this little polite little girl that we are told we should be. If you don't have anything oh, nice yeah. to say, mm -hmm. um, I'm not going to be rude, but I'm also not going to let people be harmed by lies. Exactly. scammers so exactly. again if you see something say something we hear it all the time in lots of other social justice movements so why not in this one too you know in these predatory high demand groups whether they are commercial cults religious cults personality cults whatever they could be yeah um, educating what those red flags are and helping people see them so that they don't get stuck in them absolutely there is actually there's actually a line in here, if you don't mind, could I like find it really quick and read it to you that it's in Vixen and I, when you're saying that, like, I would love to just read it if that's okay. Absolutely. I would love to hear a passage of Vixen. This is just kind of a part of my first chapter that I, that I wrote and uh, I'm talking about how I had to say goodbye to this past life. So this is what I wrote. I said, even though I was happy and proud of my growth, I couldn't share it with the people who were supposed to love me. I had to stay hidden, holding tight to hope in mere memories of friends, holding tight to a daydream of a sister life that wasn't meant for me, a sister life that would have required me to find contentment as a submissive and dutiful Mormon woman surrounded by a community of fellow believers to love me. As Cheryl Strayed says, I'll never know, and neither will you, about the life you didn't choose. We'll only know that whatever that sister life was, it was important and beautiful and not ours. It was the ghost ship that didn't carry us. There's nothing to do but salute it from the shore. So here I am saluting it from the shore, bidding it adieu, and it's painful. Sometimes it still hurts to know that many of my friends and family can only love me on a surface level because they hold tighter to their religion, indoctrination, and belief system. When someone leaves the church, they don't always want to say goodbye to the people in it. They just want to be loved for who they are, and they want to love others in return. But too often, this right is denied. Once a person leaves, there is no more room for love. Both parties feel rejected, hurt, and scorned. The post-Mormon is closed out, shunned, and only spoken of in gossip groups and rumor mills. The service projects for these people and their families come to an abrupt end. Their children are excluded from neighborhood playdates. Their families stop inviting them to reunions, camping trips, and Christmas dinners. 
the doors to love that, has, that have always been open to them are now only opened on a conditional basis. They can only be unlocked with a magical key, a key of acceptance due to unwavering belief in absolute submission. And if you do not possess one of these magical keys, you are denied unconditional love and acceptance for who you are. But remember, your right as a human is to live your truth and no one has a right to condemn you for living it. It goes both ways. Respect must be had on both sides. Head over to quince.com and grab yourself a little something something and support the show by supporting our sponsors. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and say hello to lightweight fabrics and classic styles. I have been taking advantage of the beautiful weather and getting outside for daily walks, and I cannot say enough good things about the flow knit high rise boyfriend jogger from Quince. Seriously, running errands, doing school pickups, swinging by the farmer's market, or taking Jaja for a stroll around the lake, these bad boys are versatile. I love the deep pockets, the high waistband, and the internal hidden drawstring. They're quick drying, moisture wicking, antimicrobial, and the four-way stretch makes them so comfortable. They're made with 88% recycled polyester and the Global Style Standard Certified Yarn dramatically lowers environmental impact by diverting landfill and ocean-bound plastic. Not to mention using recycled claim standard approved dyeing, washing, and manufacturing processes with low water and eco-friendly dyes. They have become an absolute favorite, and you can save up to 59% off the high-end counterpart by shopping with Quince. Throw on a cotton modal scoop neck tee and some sneakers, and you've got a perfect effortless outfit. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com MLM for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash MLM to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash MLM. Do you ever wonder how much of your personal data is out there on the internet just for anyone to find? I promise it's more than you think. Your name, contact info, social security number, home address, even information about your family members. It's all being compiled by data brokers and openly sold online. This can lead to a lot of problems, including identity theft, phishing attempts, harassment, and unwanted spam calls. But now you can protect your privacy with Delete Me. Signing up for the service is super easy. Just provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts take it from there. They send you regular, personalized privacy reports showing what info they found, where they found it, and what they removed. I got my report, and I was floored with the results. Of the 105 data brokers they checked, 83 of them had my data. Delete Me then removed 173 listings of my personal data off the internet. And they make sure that it stays off too. Take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me at a special discount just for our listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash MLM and use promo code MLM at checkout. The only way to get the 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash MLM and enter code MLM at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash MLM code MLM. And um, I kind of go into just how I stayed hidden for a while um, before I realized that I could live my life without hiding. But I kind of go into, you know, the fact that I was fixing my speech habits around certain people or I wouldn't post on social media or I would just kind of live half in and half out just so I could be loved. And um, 
at the end, I end with, sometimes our souls are so big and powerful that they cannot be contained by religion. Sometimes our purpose is so far reaching that no organization can contain us. Sometimes the godliest thing to do is be true to ourselves. So I feel like that like encompasses like everything that we've been talking about for the last few minutes, um, just to be loved for who we are, you know? I absolutely love that. I can't wait to read your book. I'm so excited. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to put a link to your book in the show notes so that everybody that just listened to that and was like, oh my God, and wants to read more can find it. Um, oh God, I'm so proud of you. And I cannot wait to read it. That it's just <laughs> so powerful. Um, I know there's a couple of things I want to talk to you about. Okay. One, which you just briefly mentioned in that passage talking about being submissive and dutiful, which yeah. is something that we hear all the time. We heard it uh, in the gossip mills and LuLaRoe, people being obsessed with the husbands and making sure that you were like, you know, I mean, we heard about Deanne telling me I should get a more supportive LuLaRoe husband instead, that sort of thing. Um, yeah. it, it ran rampant. Uh, and it also has a lot to do, I think, um, obviously previously before that is like purity culture, um, which was another thing that as you were reading that passage was going through my head. I follow a lot of people on TikTok that are ex-Evan and ex-Mo and mm -hmm. they talk a lot about purity culture. So um, I don't know if anybody listening is like thinking like, what the heck is purity culture? But if you would be willing to sort of just talk about it briefly so we can learn a little bit about purity culture and, and what it is. For sure, yeah. I don't have the actual like legitimate definition of what purity culture is. I know that there, it can go pretty deep, but I know that I was for sure a, I don't even wanna use the word victim cause I don't like that, but I was a person who experienced purity culture and has had long-term lasting effects from purity culture. Um, to the point where I've had to talk about it in therapy and it has very real side effects that are very um, uh, comparable to like complex PTSD. Um, essentially, I was taught that if I had sex before marriage, it was a sin next to murder and that my body was a temple, but to the point where my body was so powerful it could control other people and that it was my responsibility to keep my body under wraps so that I could control the thoughts and actions of other people. And this was drilled into my head from the moment I was baptized into the LDS church as a 13 year old girl. And, um, you know, I went from being a teenager who was athletic and carefree and tomboy and didn't really think about her body at all. I just knew that, you know, I, I was strong and I was capable and I loved to ride my bike and um, do martial arts and, you know, I don't know, go camping and four wheeling and do all those things. And my body was healthy and strong enough to do those things. And suddenly, I felt like I was an object. It almost did the opposite of what it was trying to teach. Like the purity culture that was enforced on me 
truly like objectified my body because I never felt objectified until I was inside of purity culture where, you know, my shoulders, my knees, my thighs, my belly, my chest, everything had to be covered at all times. Um, I remember actually at girls camp when I was about 15, maybe a little bit younger. It was one of my first times at girls camp. And this was another item I put on my shelf. Um, we were supposed to be doing these skits on stage and we had, I don't know, maybe a hundred girls that were between the ages of 13 and 17. And these girls that were a year or two older than me, they went up on stage and they were doing their silly little skit and doing their dance. And it was all very innocent and fun. And at one point in the dance, they raised their arms above their head and they were doing something silly and they were dancing. And one of the girls was wearing a sweatshirt and jeans and her sweatshirt came up and you could see her belly. You could see her belly button. You could see like maybe three inches of her belly. And uh, after their skit was over, one of the girls camp directors went down on stage, got the microphone, asked the young girl to stand up in the audience and publicly shamed her in front of probably, I don't know, 50 to 80 young women for letting her belly show and um, gave her the consequence of the next time that that's gonna happen, I'm gonna make you wear something, you know, like ugly or dumb or something to kind of like humiliate her and make sure that she doesn't do it again. And even like talking now, like <laughs> I'm like getting emotional because again, if that were my daughter, I would be so upset that someone was objectifying her body like that. Um, and none of us really cared. Like none of us, I mean, they were being silly. It was fun. Like we were playing because we're still children, right? Like truly all of us there are still children and we were just playing and having a good time. Um, and so things like that were so enforced and there were lessons on, well, no one likes a, lip, a licked cupcake. No one wants a chewed piece of gum. Once you're, Once the gum has been chewed, you can never make it whole again. So wow. things like that. Yeah. Things like that. And it was like, by the time I met my husband, like we were at BYU Idaho. And so they're very strict with curfews and when you can be alone together. And, um, I just remember thinking like, I was so attracted to him and I was so scared of him because I was terrified to like show him how I felt about him. Like if it was anything beyond like holding hands and like a kiss, like I felt guilty about it. And, um, and if it did go beyond that and anyone found out about it, both of us could get kicked out of school. So again, getting in the way of our education. <laughs> That's, I mean, this hyper focus on sexuality is wild to me absolutely yeah. wild because you're you're literally objectifying children yeah literally like these children are not thinking anything about oh my belly button is sexualizing it's it's tempting to men yeah. <laughs> like no one no child thinks that yeah children are like look i have a hole it makes a noise like i can make it talk there's nothing nothing sexual about a belly button to a little child there's just no. nothing yes exactly like even now, 
my son, he'll see my belly button and he's like, ew, belly buttons are weird. And I'm like, I know, right? Belly buttons are weird. Like they're super weird. And so, you know what I mean? Like who the hell cares about belly button? Like no one, belly buttons are belly buttons. Everyone has a belly button. And um, it's just so funny to me that we make such a big deal out of something like that. And that when you're in an organization, you know, like the LDS religion, that things like that, and even like the caps of your shoulders, that one's a big one, you know, it's very sexual, the cap of your shoulder, um, or the top of your knee, um, things like that. Um, it's just ridiculous to me. And I refuse to take part in it anymore because I'm so much more than a body. And that is something I did not understand for a very long time because my body was so um, objectified for the longest time that I found a very, I found it very hard to value myself um, outside of my body because I, I was ashamed of my body always. Um, I, was, I was ashamed of how much power my body had and how sexual it was, even though I literally have to have a body to live and I didn't ask to be born in this body, you know? Yeah, so I dealt with that for a very long time. I, I talk a lot about it in my book. I have a chapter. It's actually becoming one of the most popular chapters in the book, which is, I guess, kind of funny to me. The chapter is named Dilated, um, and it is about my first gynecological appointment as a young woman that I got before I got married. And um, in the LDS, well, I shouldn't say in the LDS culture because this is not necessarily LDS culture. It is definitely like a, it's in the area. So Washington, Utah, Idaho definitely have a higher population of LDS people. Um, it, but in Utah and Idaho, there is this thing called premarital exams. And when you call the women's doctor and you say, I would like a premarital exam, they know what that means. And they put you on the books because that is an exam where you get a pap smear and, you know, you get um, a breast exam and things like that. But they also talk to you about what your first time having sex might be like. And at those appointments, they also at least in my experience, um, give you plastic dilators to use to prepare your body to have sex for the first time. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. What? <laughs> yes. What? Are these LDS doctors? This particular, my, my experience took place in Rexburg, Idaho. And so I'm assuming because, you know, it's a very, 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 very high population of LDS people. Um, but if you go anywhere else, like I'm located outside of Seattle, if you were to call a clinic here and say, I would like a premarital exam, they'd be like, excuse me, what are you talking about? Cause yeah, it's just not normal <laughs> at all. These um, dilators, do you like wear them around all day? Like, yep. Yep. Isn't so that a little presumptuous of, of the men in the church to be like, you're going to need to wear this to prepare. Like, I feel that's very presumptuous. Is that just me? Yes. I love that you just said that. <laughs> okay. Yes. So there's three different sizes. So <laughs> the first one 
is like the size of like a light day tampon, like a very, very slim, small tampon. The second one is probably like the size of like a super tampon. But then like the biggest size is like, like Costco XL, like Kirkland brand Costco big size. Um, and <laughs> I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry for me laughing at this is offending anybody. No, it's not. This is so just to me, it's, I don't want to offend anybody, but it is okay. It's wildly uncomfortable. And I have to tell you when I wrote this chapter, I wrote it. Um, and I've told like my followers and stuff on social media, this, this chapter is so dark and like ridiculous and depressing and like your jaw just like drops and it because it is like that I had to throw some dark humor in there like I could not write this chapter without it so like at one point I'm like I'm like talking about how my can I say vagina on the show is that okay okay (laughs) (laughs) um I I was talking about like how my vagina was one of those plants that eat bugs and the gynecologist's arm was the bug and like (laughs) I just like had to be funny and like dumb and humorous about it because I was so uncomfortable writing it and so maybe that's why it's a popular one is because it's super dramatic, but at the same time, like has that humor to it too. I don't know, but yes, that happened. I just, I can't get over that. Yeah. I mean, I under like, Hey, Mormon church. I don't want to kink shame. I just want to kink ask why. Yeah. Like, I don't understand why you need to wear dilators. That is like yeah. so culty, so weird. Uh, I've never heard of that ever in my entire life, straight out of the bite model, like behavior control of of your sex life. Like that's insane. And I have some text messages I need to send because (laughs) my best friend is LDS and I have questions. So, and that's the thing. This is another thing. Like there are people out there that might be listening and be like, no, no way that does not happen. Okay. That doesn't happen, not to you and maybe not to your friends, but it happened to me. It happened to me in Rexburg, Idaho. And I wore things inside of my body to prepare my body for a man. Like that's disturbing. And that should be your key takeaway is that this happened to somebody, even if that somebody wasn't you. And even if that somebody wasn't your friend, that happened to me. And it happened to many girls that I have gone to school with and know firsthand that they went to those appointments as well. And the the sick part about it is it became such a norm that when a girl would come home and I call them a sex kit in my book, I, I say when, when, you know, roommates or girls would come home with their little new sex kit with their like dilators they'd have to wear, we'd be excited for them. We'd be like, oh my gosh, it's almost time for you to have sex. This is so exciting. Like you're preparing your body for sex. This is so cool. Oh my gosh. Like this is like a, like a, like a moment of growth in your life, right? Where you're like almost a woman. And I think back on that and I'm like, no, that is so messed up. Like so messed up. It just Um, seems like this ritualistic thing. I mean, it is, 
oh god like this ritualistic thing to like you said to prepare you for a man yeah and you know god i I, i'm i'm speechless thank you like that it rarely happens but oh my god (laughs) yeah it was um something i honestly did not even consider it i don't know it just seemed so normal all the other girls were doing it and when you're in such an isolated place like rexburg idaho where you're surrounded by potato fields and farmers and you know like the biggest metropolitan city is about five hours away like you're more you're closer to yellowstone than you are to a city like that's the reality of it is that you're so isolated and it's so out there and then everyone else is doing the same thing and it's supported by your peers and by every you know and so you don't understand that that's not and you know I was 19 when I got married as well so I should probably add that in there I was very young and very impressionable and had no idea what the hell I was doing so yeah I could have said no I could have been like this is weird I don't like this but I was basically a teenager still and I was like everyone else is doing it I guess I'll do it too this is what all good Mormon girls do so I just went along with it and I went along with too many things and that's what got me to the point where finally one day it was like I woke up and truly I give my husband a lot of credit for that because he helped me see that there's some things that aren't right and that's you know looking back I'm like okay I see all these things now but when you're in it you don't see it that way so when you defected from the church did your husband also leave the church as well he is the one that wanted to leave first surprisingly because I was the one that was all in I was the one that was the spiritual head of our household I was the one that got us to church on Sunday and had us read our scriptures and paid our 10% tithing on the pennies that we made. And he was the one that one day, right after our son was born, he was like, I'm done. I need a break. And I was like, a a break from what? And he was like, the church. I mean, a permanent break. I just need a break, a permanent break, a forever break. I never want to go back. And I to say my world was turned upside down is an understatement Um, because you are taught that in order to have an eternal family, one that stays together forever, which is why I joined in the first place, remember, that you have to stay active in the church and, you know, be worthy to go in the temple and keep your covenants or your promises with God. And that you will not be able to be with your family forever if you don't keep those promises and do all the things on earth that you were are supposed to do. And so when he told me he wanted out, I thought we were done. I thought we were going to get divorced. I thought, you know, we had just had this baby boy, this beautiful, perfect baby boy. And he's not going to know what it's like to grow up in a family with a mom and a dad. And he's going to end up like me. And he's not going to know what that feels like to have a secure family. And that's why I joined in the first place. And this is what I wanted. Now I don't, I'm not going to have it. And I just felt like I just spiraled. My mind just spiraled out of control. I thought, I don't know. Like, I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. No one's going to want to date a divorced woman in the church with a kid, like, because 
I don't know, like no one ever told me that, but that was kind of the way it felt, you know? And I think anyone that has been divorced or separated probably knows like, it's also embarrassing. Like you don't want to show the world that you have like a failed relationship or failed family or whatever. And all of that was weighing on my shoulders. And I was 22. Uh, I couldn't even rent a car. <laughs> and I was worried about my eternal salvation. And it's just ridiculous because also as a woman, you are not able to go to the highest level of the highest kingdom of heaven without being married. So then there was that. And so I, all of this was going through my head. And Travis said, you can do what you want to do, but I'm out. And I said, okay. And I, I don't know, I, I had a bathroom floor moment where I just cried and cried and cried all by myself on the bedroom floor for hours. And I prayed and I was like, I have to have answers. I have to know what I believe in. I can't not know what I believe in. And I decided that for the first time since I've been baptized, I was going to choose my husband and my child over an organization and that I was going to take that leap of faith because I could not lose them. Like I couldn't do it. I couldn't lose them for anything. Even if it meant that I was going to go to hell, I couldn't lose them. Like there's, I wasn't going to do it. And so that is what pulled me up off the bedroom floor and got me to move forward. And I decided to take a break, but I wasn't really sure what that meant. And it's been six years now and uh, pretty sure it's pretty permanent. <laughs> so um, yeah, there's been a lot of, you know, life lessons and explore exploration and hitting rock bottom and People ask me all the time, well, what are you now? Are you Christian? Are you atheist? Are you, what are you? And I'm like, I refuse to put myself in another goddamn box for any second longer. Like I refuse to do it. I will not do it. And this quote from Eckhart Tolle is um, something that has resonated with me ever since I left. And he says, when he's asked what he is in regards to his faith, he says, I am a feather on the breath of God. And so I've, that's my answer. I'm a feather on the breath of God. I don't know what that means. I don't know if there is a God or many gods or just the universe or ancestors or my higher self or whatever God is, I am just going to flow and I'm just going to be fluid and I'm going to learn and grow and be, and I'm going to go wherever I need to go and do the things I need to do, but I'm not going to be held in a box anymore. I love that. Absolutely. And that goes right with what you uh, posted on Instagram today, which I took a screenshot of because I absolutely love. <laughs> it is a quote from Adam Grant. It is his, uh, it's a tweet that you shared. Yeah. And it says, a sign of intellect is the ability to change your mind in the face of new facts. A mark of wisdom is refusing to let the fear of admitting you were wrong stop you from getting it right. The joy of learning something new eventually exceeds the pain of unlearning something old. And I saw that and I was like, oh, we're talking about this. And I screenshot it. <laughs> this is beautiful. This is absolutely beautiful. This is absolutely yeah. how I feel. Yeah. Circles right back around to what we were talking about at the very beginning. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's absolutely beautiful. So thank you for introducing this to me because this is just a wonderful quote. 
Yeah, thank you. I actually just found it today. Someone I know posted it and I was like, whoa, I feel like this is so big. Like I need this like blown up and plastered on my wall so I can see it every day because truly it, it obviously means a lot to me because I left a religious organization, a very highly controlling religious organization, but it's also something I want to teach our son. I want him to know that he can you know, he could know something one day and not know something the next and that it's okay to have to unlearn things and learn new things. And, um, you know, sometimes we think life is so linear and that learning is so linear, but that in faith, faith is not linear. It is like the absolute opposite of that. And so I just, I want people to know that it's okay to change and learn and unlearn and be different. I have so many people that reach out to me and they're like, I'm, my, my family's coming into town for the holidays. I'm hiding my coffee maker. And I'm like, why, why are you doing that? And they're like, yeah, like I have to hide the bottle of wine. And I'm like, why it's your home. You are allowed to exist as a person who enjoys things that other people don't enjoy. And that's okay. You've relearned things that you didn't know before and now here you are and you're learning you're living this life and you're learning all these amazing things and you're drinking the coffee and drinking the wine and having the best time and don't hide that from people because if that's the thing that causes them to stop loving you then was their love even real to begin with like this whole conditional love thing is just absolutely ridiculous you cannot love someone unconditionally and then all of a sudden treat them terribly because they have a cup of coffee in the morning or whatever, you know? So things like that, just, I wanted to post that as a reminder to people that they can be who they want to be and they can learn and unlearn and be, so. Absolutely, I, I, I love it. I love it so much. Um, the other thing is it wouldn't be an episode of Life After MLM without a little bit of MLM talk. <laughs> so you did tell me that you did, briefly get sucked into an MLM. Yeah. So, uh, before our son was born about a year into our marriage, I had a friend who sold Mary Kay and she was able to, you know, stay home and kind of make some money. And, um, she was like, why don't you sell Mary Kay with me? Like, it would be so fun. You could be on my team. And, you know, I really liked her a lot and um, really valued, you know, just her knowledge and things like that. And so I decided, okay, let me give this a shot. So I went to one of their, um, like one of their parties or whatever that they host. And I decided that I was going to try some of their products and see how that went. And so I tried their products at the party and I really enjoyed everyone's company. And then a couple weeks later, they were like, well, you know, like if you join, if you join, it's only like a hundred dollars, you can join and then you can be a part of our team and you can start making money and it's super easy. And truly all you do is you make women feel beautiful. That's all you have to do is make women feel beautiful and you pamper them and you love them and you throw parties and it's so fun and you make money and you can stay home and you can do it from anywhere. And so I was like, 
okay. And I knew that, you know, we were probably going to be starting a family fairly short, like soon. And so I was like, you know, this could be cool. Like maybe I'll start this now. And then by the time, like we do have a family, maybe like I'll be good enough to where like I could be making us money. You know, I don't have to get like a real job. Like I could, I, I could stay home and still make money for our family. And so I bought in and we couldn't even afford the hundred dollars. Like it was seriously one of those things where we spent the hundred dollars and we weren't sure how we were going to make ends meet. <laughs> like we were so poor and so young and barely married. And yeah, it was just a lot. And so the hundred dollars does not seem like a lot to most people, but to us, it was the difference between eating and not eating for a week. It's um, not just a hundred dollars either. Yeah, it's not because uh, once you get in, then it's like, okay, well, that hundred dollars pays for like your first little bit of inventory, but then you're going to need more because if you do more parties, you have to have inventory for the parties. And then, you know, the, like the head person, she's, she was so successful. Like she had a whole storeroom, like in her home full of just product so that whenever her clients needed something, she could just deliver it that day. And she would go on and say, yeah, like I have women that are like, oh, I'm out of my mascara. I'm going on vacation in two days. Like I really need it now. That's the only mascara I wear. And if you don't have it in your storeroom, or if you don't have it in your inventory, like you're going to lose a sale. So you really just need to have it on hand. And I said, oh, well, that's really cool. And I know you've been doing this for you know a long time. So you probably can afford it, you know, but like I could barely afford the hundred dollars to even start this. Like I can't afford to have inventory. And she's like, oh, it's okay. It's totally cool. All you have to do is sign up for the Mary Kay credit card. And I was like, credit card, Mary Kay credit card. And then she's like, yeah. So you buy everything on this credit card. And then once you sell it, you just pay on your credit card. So you like pay down your balance. And I was like, okay. And then she also said, well, then when you buy, when you get this credit card, you get free shipping. But other than if you don't have this credit card, you don't get free shipping. So that's another perk to it. And thank God I said no, because honestly, like, again, looking back, it's like, what the hell? Like, why? Why would you try to like manipulate a young girl into getting a credit card she doesn't need just so she can buy inventory that may or may not sell? Like that's not smart financially. And so, yeah, I didn't do that. And I only did Mary Kay for, it was under a year. Um, but, you know, there were other things like, it was like, oh, get this you know, free sparkly pink Mary Kay calculator if you jump on a phone call every day for 20 minutes. And it was like a phone call. It was very much like, um, it was like an inspirational message and how to up your sales and how to do certain things for parties or whatever. And it was kind of like pre-recorded. And so you jump on for 20 minutes. Um, and I remember telling her, I, I would say, okay, but I'm a full-time student. Like my schedule's crazy. I'm also working part-time. Like my, I, I don't have much time because I'm also studying or whatever. And she'd be like, well, you need to jump on and you still need to do it. So while you're getting ready in the morning, you just need to call in 
or while you're studying for that exam, just call in and just put it on speakerphone while you're, you know, and so it's just little things like that. And I was just like, seriously, like, I don't really want that calculator that much, <laughs> you know, just think just dumb things like that, that were just being asked of me. And, um, yeah, so that was like my short time in, in the MLM. So many like indoctrination tactics for little baubles you don't even need. They're like, if you just listen to us tell you how great this is every day for 20 minutes, we'll give you a calculator. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, no thanks. <laughs> yep, that's exactly what it was. And then it was like, you know, you gotta be a you gotta be a really like you gotta be a high performing member of the team because if you are, then we're this much closer to getting that pink Cadillac, you know? And so things like that. And there's like weekly meetings. And like, like I said, I was a college student. I was going to school. I was working part-time. Like I didn't have a lot of time to give and there would be weekly meetings. And let me just add too, like as an active Mormon, it is not a church on Sunday thing. You have events, you have activities, you have to commit to going to the temple. You have all these things that fill up your schedule and a lot, like, I mean, that is all you are doing is church. So I was going to school, church school, full-time. I was working part-time. I was trying to do all the things outside of school and work that my church wanted me to do, which was probably about 10 hours a week. Um, and then, you know, now I had this Mary Kay thing and that was just even more commitment. And so that was just a lot on my plate at the time, um, for a lot of things that weren't really serving me, like, to be honest, I should have just been able to go to school and work and just kind of like have a normal college existence, but I didn't. <laughs> Did you notice any similarities with Mary Kay and the Mormon church? Like, was there anything that you noticed while you were in both of them or were the similarities only noticed once you got out? Uh, yeah, the commitment for sure is a big one. And then like the passive guilt trips for sure too. Like, you know, if I say, if I set a boundary, for example, like, oh, I'm so sorry, I can't make it tonight. And they're like, well, that's too bad because, you know, like your sales or your team really depends on it or your eternal salvation depends on it or whatever, you know what I mean? Like, or whatever, just like anything that has to do with that boundary and like setting that boundary, neither one of them were super hyped about. <laughs> yeah. That really loaded language, huh? Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, those were probably like the two things I really noticed about that. And then also like the over friendliness, like the toxic positivity at all times um, was a lot because I'm a person where like, if I have a bad day, I want to be able to be like, hey, I had a really crappy day. Can I please just vent? Can I just word barf it out? Can you make me like I don't know, feel better. Can you just be a friend and just be like, man, that sucks. I'm so sorry you got a bad day. That person's a jerk, you know, or whatever. And not be like super over the top positive where you feel like you can't have a bad day or you can't say anything negative because that's ridiculous and that's not real. So that was hard. <laughs> yeah, the restrictive behaviors are 
straight across the board in cults, like 100%. Yeah. yeah. It's amazing. Your entire story is amazing. Thank you so much for sharing it. Thank you so much for being so candid. I can't wait to read your book. Thank you. I hope you enjoy it. Um, I think when you do read it, you'll probably see some similarities like with your own experiences. Um, just in some of the, again, like the passive behaviors and just even like control tactics and like mind control and just all of that. Um, I think you will definitely see, I love reading other people's stories and hearing other people's stories because I find myself nodding along and being like, yeah, me too. Maybe not the exact way, but I can relate because I felt that same way before. And so I found, um, you know, just being able to relate to other people is really healing. So hopefully when you do read it, that is the case for you too. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm in the middle of reading Sarah Edmondson's book and that's exactly how I'm feeling. I'm I like, yes. So I'm like, oh, it's so good. I had to yeah. put it down because like I was crying and I was like, oh my gosh. Okay. But it is the same way. It's like, there's so many similarities. Yeah where literally, I mean, she's talking about things and I'm like, mm-hmm, I can put myself in those situations in my own experiences. And it is just, it is so similar. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So here at the end, we do these rapid fire questions. We're going to talk about some MLM opinions of yours. Are you ready? Yes. One word that encompasses how you feel about multi-level marketing. Ew. warning or piece of advice to somebody that thinks they might want to join an MLM? It's not what it seems to be. That's it. (laughs) What, in your opinion, is the worst MLM out there? Oh, good Lord. Honestly, after watching the Lula Rich documentary, that one seems pretty bad. Like, I know I was in Mary Kay, but I wasn't in there for that long. You know what I mean? Like I was, I was, it was like a blip in my timeline, but then to see some of the stuff that's been going on for you guys that, oh, I don't know. Uh, I don't have that much experience in this world, but based on what I've seen, that seems pretty bad. Yeah. So this is the hardest lesson that you learned in MLM, but like you just said, you really weren't in MLM so long. So we are going to change it to the hardest lesson that you learned while you were LDS. Yeah. Okay. The hardest lesson that I learned while I was LDS, that no matter what I do, I will never be good enough. And that the love that I receive is conditional based on my ability to submit and follow every single rule to the T. And I'm happy to say that I no longer believe any of those things. So yeah, it's, it's good. It's a good time to not be a Mormon. (laughs) (laughs) And then we're going to turn it around and we're going to say a positive takeaway from your time being a Mormon that my worth is not dependent on anyone else's thoughts or opinions about me and that I deserve unconditional love 
whether I am at rock bottom or I'm on the highest mountaintop ever, that um, I am good, no matter what anyone else thinks I am good, because I'm um, in my heart, I know that I'm good. And to me, that is what matters most. It doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. I know that I am good and that I'm worth it and that I am lovable. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing your story. <laughs> and for everybody that wants to get a copy of Vixen, I will, like I said, pop the link in the show notes so that you guys can easily find it and grab a copy for yourself. Thank you so much, Lindsay. Thank you so much. I had so much fun. <laughs> I hope you guys enjoyed Lindsay's and my chat. I know personally for me, I cannot wait to get my hands on a copy. So after our interview, I reached out to Lindsay and I said, Hey, can I get a copy of your book, please? She said, yeah, I've got a whole box coming. And then I was like, you know what? We're doing giveaways in December. Lindsay, would you be willing to donate a signed copy of Vixen to our giveaways? And of course she said, yes. So we're going to be giving away a signed copy of the book that we just talked about with the author, Lindsay, who's our friend and who's awesome. So Lindsay and I are cooking up some ideas of what we're going to use as the entry to getting a copy of her book. So please stay tuned on social media. Make sure you're following the real Roberta Blevins and life after MLM podcast on Instagram. And if you have TikTok, make sure you're following us over there on TikTok as well at Berta Like Whoa. And that is W H O A. We'll see you back here in a couple of days for day four. Thank you so much for listening to Life After MLM. Please don't forget to like and subscribe and share with all of your anti MLM friends as well. See you next time.